This is Daniel Harpin, and I am the president of the Shalom Harpin Institute. Today is Monday, November 16th, 2020, and this is For Heaven's Sake, a podcast from the Harpin Institute's I Engage project. Today's theme is entitled Israel and American Jewelry Post-Election, an Intractable Divide, question mark. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Yossi Klein Halevi, senior research fellow at the Institute here in Jerusalem and myself, will be discussing a current issue central to Israel and the Jewish world. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classic Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. At the Hartman Institute, we approach the Israel conversation as we do all conversations, from a perspective of Jewish values, seeking broad and deep engagement. Our aim is to encourage a serious and respectful conversation on Israel across political lines, promoting understanding, and strengthening Jewish peoplehood. Let's begin. Jewish peoplehood is not a simple or obvious fact. We live in different geographic and national realities, and Judaism itself, more than it unites us, divides us. A new force, however, has recently emerged among the two largest Jewish communities in Israel and the United States, who together comprise close to 90% of Jews worldwide. This new divisive force is politics. In the recent American elections, over 75% of American Jewry voted for President-elect Biden, while polls in Israel showed that Donald Trump was supported by 80% of Israeli Jews. Using the American color chart, U.S. Jews outside of orthodoxy are principally blue, while Israelis across the ideological map are generally red. In this edition of For Heaven's Sake, we will explore the causes and meanings of this divide, and its implications for the future of Jewish peoplehood. Hi, Yossi. Nice to be with you again. Always a pleasure, Daniel. How do you explain? It's not, you know, 60, 40, 50, 75, 85. It's almost as if we are opposite images of each other. How do you explain the differences? And what do you think are the root causes? The simple reason for why Israelis are overwhelmingly pro-Trump. Simple gratitude. Israelis uh, look at the last four years and and feel that uh, here is a guy who was in our corner. But as you indicate, the root causes are much deeper. And you mentioned geographical circumstances, so we can start from there. American Jews live in what is, thank God, still the safest, most accepting, country that Jews have ever lived in. We live in the most hostile and dangerous region on the planet, not only for Jews, for for everybody. And as a result of that, each side has devised a series of coping mechanisms, which makes perfect sense for their own circumstances. So American Jews have created a flexible, open peoplehood, responsive to its environment. We've created a national identity that relies on deterrence to deal with our environment, which is exactly the opposite. And then if you start factoring in the military experience, which is so seminal for Israelis, and among American Jews, I think it's fair to say that this is the first generation maybe since the revolution, where you have a whole generation that has not had military experience, and all of the cultural and psychological consequences of that. We're a nation of soldiers. American Jews are a community that doesn't know the military experience. 
And then you can factor in the different ways in which each community navigates its Jewishness, where we live as a majority. We live with the opportunities and also constraints of peoplehood. We're on top of each other. We have to constantly navigate the differences among us. American Jews live in communities which are self-selecting, relatively homogeneous. Let me stop you a second, because it's not sufficient just to have a list of all the differences, and they're significant. Why would one lead to being more pro-Trump and one being anti-Trump? Because first of all, when you live in a situation where you're constantly under threat, where your seminal experience of growing up is the military, and you have this mindset, which has been verified by reality, that you are often alone, or at least you feel alone, you're going to be grateful for support no matter where it comes from. But there's also something deeper here than that. And that is how we understand the core of our Jewishness. What are the core values? And I was thinking about, about your model of Genesis Judaism and Exodus Judaism. And Genesis Judaism, we can call the Judaism of peoplehood. I'm born into a people, I'm part of a people. Exodus Judaism is the Judaism of becoming what you call the Judaism of being and the Judaism of becoming. The Judaism of becoming places ethics at its core. Now, if you were to ask your average American Jew, is social justice key to Jewishness? They'd say, well, obviously, tikkun olam. Many Israelis don't even know what tikkun olam is. If you were to ask them, is social justice key to your Jewishness? They would say, what, do I have to be Jewish to care about social justice? Jewishness is about certain observances, there's the holidays, there's a family, there's going to the army. So our frameworks are different. And therefore, the whole question of politics and ethics and Jewish loyalty plays out differently. American Jews think, many American Jews think, that supporting Trump is anti-Jewish. Israelis think supporting Trump is pro-Jewish. Let's look at some of the consequences of your analysis. You gave two types of reasons. One reason was we're growing up in different experiences. If you're in Israel, survival is key. And therefore, whoever helps your survival right now, that's your primary issue. And for somebody for whom survival is not as key, this is your analysis, you have room to talk about other things. So it's almost as if, if Israeli Jews and American Jews, according to your first analysis, would change places, they would also agree with each other. And then essentially we don't have a core divide. We don't have a core ideological divide. We just have different experiences. So it's not that there is this significant debate over Donald Trump's Middle Eastern policies or his positions on the world. It's just when you live six to 10,000 miles away and you have fundamentally different experiences, what you look at and what you give priority to might be very, very different. I want to respond to that for a moment, because let's take the issue of gratitude. The issue of gratitude is seen very differently by most American Jews and most Israelis in relation to Trump. Israelis feel a natural sense of gratitude to this man. Many American Jews feel no reason at all to be grateful to him. So the question then really is, is it just our circumstances? Or does Israel really matter less? As some of our colleagues at Hartman in America are trying to get us to understand, American Jews have a different set of priorities and therefore a different set of values. I want to force us to make order here. 
and to do really careful distinctions, even, even to be nudgy a little bit, <laughs> because each one of them has very different consequences and has very different implications for the future of the life of Israel and North American Jews together. See, if you're on the first one, okay, it's natural. And part of what we then have to understand is that if we want to have an idea of Jewish peoplehood worldwide, we have to recognize that, of course, there's going to be tensions because the core experience is very, very different. When you got into the, the issue of gratitude, people feel gratitude towards Trump, but Israelis aren't naturally that gracious. Like, let's get real. I'm going to support Trump for what he did yesterday. No, I think for Israelis, it's what they hope he's going to do tomorrow. It was to continue. It wasn't gratitude over the past. It was a sense of what you're going to do for me tomorrow. And from an Israeli perspective, their Middle East is safer with Donald Trump than without Donald Trump. Yes, but, you know, Daniil, I wouldn't shortchange the Israeli capacity for gratitude, for appreciation, and for recognizing a friend. You know, Israelis really value friendship. That's such an elementary Israeli experience, the chevra, your friends. This is galling for so many American Jews, but Trump is seen by many Israelis as one of us. Now, could it be, and we have to put it on the table, you juxtapose the sense of gratitude that Israelis have towards Trump with American Jews for whom Israel is just not as important. And that's why they don't have that sense of gratitude. But I think that's making your life too easy, Yossi. You're creating a juxtaposition that I don't think necessarily has to be there. I disagree with you a little bit. When somebody is six to 10,000 miles away, the fact that Israel is not the first thing they vote for is not a flaw. It's not somehow, oh, you know, we have gratitude, but you just don't care about Israel. You're creating this tension that doesn't have to be there. Just like the Israeli who votes for Trump, not on the basis of what he's doing to America, but what he's doing for Israel, and that's considered legitimate, and that's gratitude and thankfulness. The American Jew, their job as an American Jew who is at home is to look at a whole spectrum of issues. Now, it's not that Israel is less important for North American Jews. It's just by definition, when something is six to 10,000 miles away, there are multiple issues that you're going to vote for. And it would be obscene if you would vote for only one. But I want to make it even more difficult for you, Yossi. What about if some of the differences are a result of what's best for Israel? What happens when from six to 10,000 miles away, you have different priorities for Israel? What would happen if for an Israeli, when I'm on the ground and very close, issues of life and death somehow trump certain moral discourse? Maybe using the language that you quoted, maybe some parts of the needs of being trumps the needs of becoming. But from six to 10,000 miles away, by nature, you're not as frightened, nor should you be. But maybe the fact that you're not as frightened is not a flaw, it's actually something very, very positive. There's another perspective. So part of what I'm asking you is, and I'm challenging and disagreeing with you a little bit, is that there seems to be a hierarchy here. And I would want to flatten it. And I would also want to say that maybe part of a North American discourse is to say maybe Trump wasn't good for Israel. And precisely when I don't feel the loneliness, but I do feel, for example, the need to resolve the Palestinian conflict as an internal Israeli agenda, there's a debate as to what's our principal need right now. 
How do you respond to that? Yes. I think you're, you're raising two really interesting points, both of which take us in a potentially fruitful direction in trying to figure out how to move this relationship to a healthier place. So going back to your first point, the fact that American Jews and Israelis will naturally react to the same set of circumstances differently because of their geographical circumstances, I think that means that each of us has the right to ask from the other a little bit of space and a little bit of respect. Israelis need to respect the fact that American Jews may not vote as their top priority for Israel in an American election. And that's not betrayal, that when the future of American society seems to be at play, this isn't the moment to be expressing your gratitude for Trump's recognition of Israel's annexation of the Golan. Maybe that's not the moment. And I, as an Israeli, however difficult it is for me, <laughs> I have to honor the Americanness of American Jews and not see their Americanness as a betrayal of their Jewishness. Because you have to recognize that you also are only looking at it from one small perspective. Ah, but I then have the same right to ask of my American Jewish cousin to indulge me if I feel gratitude to Trump and if I tell a pollster that I would support Trump. I'm not speaking personally right now. I think I need to reassure some of our listeners. But nevertheless, I certainly understand the 80% of Israelis who say, yes, we hope Trump gets reelected. That's not a betrayal of Jewish ethics. Neither side is betraying the Jewish people or Jewish values by responding in a natural way to their circumstances. That's where that first point that you bring up leads us. And if we could really internalize that in the American-Jewish-Israeli relationship, we're halfway there. Dayenu, we're on the way to creating a mutually respectful relationship. Right. Now, the second point, which is taking it one step deeper and one necessary step deeper, is does each side see something essential that the other side doesn't, that the other side might have missed? Now, when I, as an Israeli, am caught in my daily existential grind, I desperately need a friend who will hold a mirror up to me and show me what I look like. And even more than that, who will tell me what I look like to your non-Jewish neighbor. How do I appear in the world? I don't know. I don't see it. And so I desperately need American Jews, diaspora Jews, to hold up that mirror. But by the same token, just as I need to acknowledge that you in America can see something of my reality that I don't see, I also need to tell you that I see certain things of my reality that you can't see. The fact that when I speak to American Jewish audiences and the second intifada is, oh, that's history. You know, why are you bringing up 1948? Speak to Israelis, the second intifada is a living open wound. And so there's something in the experience of this place that distance obscures. And again, if we're going to have a healthy relationship, you need to tell me what you see and I need to tell you what I see. There might be huge ideological divides, but our challenge is to make sure that those ideological divides are seen as adding different sides of a larger whole and that's in our hands. 
And the second part that's in our hands is to recognize that, you know, just like Jews are Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, renewal, post-denominational, and secular, so too, 90% of the Jewish people, we live in different experiences. And because we live in different experiences, our challenge then is to recognize, as a result, it's natural and we should have those different priorities. When we de-escalate it, all of a sudden, it's not that the differences are smaller, but the consequences of those differences are much smaller. I think that the ideological differences between the communities, the circumstantial differences, are all potentially navigable. What worries me about this particular moment, and Trump has opened up this problem, is that for the first time that I can think of, the two communities are looking at each other and wondering, can I trust the other to have my back on an issue that I define as life and death? It began for Israelis during the Obama era with the Iran deal. And now American Jews are justifiably asking us the same question. Maybe the story then is that that expectation that we will always see the world through the other's eyes, especially when it's an existential threat, is maybe a demand that that's impossible, that every person could only see the world to some extent through their eyes. And there are going to be differences. And that instead of seeing it as a betrayal, understanding that that difference is an essential feature of the experiences that we're living in. Yossi, let's take a short break. And when we return, Ilana Steinhain will join us. Hi, my name is Ilana Steinhain, and I'm Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Faculty at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I want to tell you about a series of talks I'll be giving over the next few months called Talmud from the Balcony. Talmud from the Balcony is an occasional series that exposes big ideas, questions, and issues motivating rabbinic discussions. Our theme for the upcoming sessions will be Beyond the Limits of Law, Repairing the Fabric of Society. As a society, we rely upon unspoken norms of behavior and responsibility, and yet few of these norms are legally enforceable. I'll be delving into the ways the rabbis address this gap between law and character. To register for one or more of the talks, go to our website, shalomhartman.org, and look in our Hartman at Home calendar for Talma from the Balcony. Thank you and looking forward. Hi, Lana. Nice to be with you. What, what, are you, what Torah do we have on this? The first thing I want to start with is when Yossi says that there's something that distance obscures, I think you're getting right at the heart of the problem because if we were, as you said, to live in different communities independently and not have to live together, that distance would actually be very helpful. The problem is that we're trying to be an accordion. We're trying to have our distance, recognize that each one sees something different locally, and yet try to work together in concert. And that presents issues of not just different values, but actually just communication, just basic communication. What do I mean when I say religion and state? What do I mean when I say Judaism? What do I mean when I say universalism and particularism? What am I referring to? And there's just such a poignant story in the Babylonian Talmud, the Dharm 66b, that I think really captures where we are. And I want to share it with you. It goes like this. There was a certain Babylonian man who went up to the land of Israel and got married. He said to his wife, boil me two cow's feet. 
Now, he said it in Babylonian Aramaic, but she, being a native of the land of Israel, she understands Palestinian Aramaic. So she didn't bring him two cow's feet. She boiled him two lentils instead. He got very upset at her. He wanted meat. She brought him vegan. The next day, he said, boil me a neck. Again, he said it in Babylonian Aramaic. He's looking for meat. She hears it in her native tongue. So she boiled him a bushel of lentils, which is what she thought it meant. Okay, so now this has happened twice. There's more to go, but let's see if they can fix it. No, he said to her, bring me two squashes. This actually just got worse because he's offering to eat vegetables now because he's clearly misunderstanding the problem. He doesn't realize that she doesn't understand him. He thinks she just can't prepare meat. So he asks for vegetables, but he's wrong. She doesn't understand what he's saying. So of course she doesn't bring him squash. She brings him what it means in her own language. It's not even food. She brought him two lamps. All right, <laughs> three times. Now we have to fix it. But as you can already expect, they won't fix it. The story goes on. He said to her, go and break the lamps on the gate. So this is clearly, he's mad. He wants to show her, you got it wrong. You did the wrong thing. There's a problem because the word gate is Bava. And to her, that's a person's name. It's not a gate. And it's not just any person. It's a leading rabbi, Bava Ben Buta. So Bava Ben Buta was sitting at the gate and he was judging a case. She went and broke the lamps on his head. And he said to her, what are you doing? She says to him, what do you mean? My husband told me to do this. Now this, this climax is an amazing moment because she's clearly mad, right? She's doing something exhibitionist. She wants to show that something is wrong. And she might even be trying to embarrass her husband. She goes to a leading scholar and says, my husband, he told me to do this. Clearly he wasn't trying to tell her to break something on someone's head, but she wants to embarrass him. And the best response is Baba Ben Buta's response. It ends like this. Baba Ben Buta said to her, you listen to your husband. God should bring forth from your belly two sons like Baba Ben Buta. In other words, it's almost like he's saying to her, I hope you have children like me and not like your husband. I mean, you look at this story and it's almost comical, right? There's an Amelia Bedelia quality to it, but it's really, it's really tragic. And I want to just name a few of the tragic elements. First of all, we start off on the wrong foot. Someone coming from Babylonia who insists on continuing to speak his own tongue to the people in the land of Israel. He insists that they learn his language rather than him learning theirs. That's already something that in the American-Israeli divide, we know that. We know that move of coming in and saying, well, what do you mean? This is what it means to me, so this is what it should mean to you. You have to learn my language. Second, they keep doing the same thing over and over again. At no point do they actually get to the bottom of what's causing this trouble. They just can't accept that they're speaking different languages. I mean, maybe when he asks for the squashes, He's trying to give in a little, but even then it's totally misguided. It's, it's misunderstanding the enormity of the problem. And then the last, they don't help each other. They just keep pushing each other until they won't be able to live together. I mean, look at how mad they both are. He gets mad, she gets mad. I'm sure they started out with good intentions, but now they're frustrated. They're passive aggressive towards each other. And the best is she finds a third party to say, can you believe this guy? My husband, what a jerk. We know this sense of doing the same thing over and over again, misunderstanding each other over and over again, and even getting third parties to say, do you see how nuts they are? They are totally missing the point. Just get an ally. 
who comes onto your site who says they're totally missing the point. For me, this captures the key trouble, which is we really are so insistent on when it comes to my own language, I know how to speak it and you need to know how to speak it. And yet we know that there's no way that we're gonna speak the same language, exactly as you said, and over and over again, we just go through the dance instead of accepting that this is a marriage of a Babylonian and a person from the land of Israel. That's what this is. It's distance forced to live together. It's a really tragic text because it seems that what each one wants, both the husband and the wife, they know that something's going on. The first time he asks for the two calf legs, he could have simply resolved the problem and said, I asked for calf legs and you gave me lentils. And she should have said, I know, you asked for lentils. He says, no, I asked for calf legs. He says, what are you talking about? And then immediately they could have resolved it. It's almost as if there's a game that each one is playing and they know they're playing it. They don't want to resolve the problem. It's as if he wants to coerce her, as you said, to speak his language. She is going to continue to pretend that she doesn't speak his language. But remember, they're married. They seem to be able to speak each other's language. But here it seems that what each one wants is to be victorious rather than to be understood. I also think it's a test. Meaning going back to what Yossi said before of, can I really trust Americans to have my back? Can I really trust Israelis to understand what a menace I think this current president is? There's something here that's almost testing each other's loyalty. And if it's all gonna be a test and it's not actually gonna be the most charitable read and it's not going to be true intersubjectivity, then yeah, everybody's gonna fail the test every time because you can't determine what the test is. That's not fair. We know that relationships always break down when you start to test. When you're testing, no relationship could survive tests. So how, how do we heal? But they, they didn't divorce, did they, Lana? <laughs> they didn't divorce, but that also may be a function of circumstance, that yeah. they couldn't. In other words, when you're in a relationship where you can't divorce, then maybe you'll keep doing this dance, you'll go back and forth and you'll do. But if you're in it by choice, as many American Jews are, and many Israeli Jews are, then you can divorce. I would say my first suggestion is instead of talking about talking to. The end of this story where she says, get a load of my husband, what a lunatic. We in America, we have a lot of allies in America. And it's very easy for us to turn around and say, oh my gosh, look how nuts they've become in Israel. And you know what? Israelis have their own echo chamber and they could say, look how nuts American Jews have become. It doesn't help anybody. The finger wagging and name calling with whoever your perceived allies are against the other, talk to, don't talk about, that's the point of this whole story. They never talk to each other. So how do we actually open the lines of communication? And I don't mean just at the top, the creme de la creme, where you have representatives of American Jewry and representatives of Israeli Jews. I'm talking about American Jews and Israeli Jews. The more they talk to each other, the more the marriage can actually last. And that's what I would start with. 
See, Ilana, here though, I gotta push you a little bit. The husband and the wife are talking to each other. But when they're talking, the goal is not to achieve understanding. They are talking. They're talking to each other, pretending as if they want to achieve something. But in fact, what they want to do is they want to force the other. So I could have talking to. The question is, what's the objective of the talking to? I think that's absolutely right. Meaning I think that there are many conversations that we set up between American Jews and Israeli Jews where the goal is for somebody to be able to help you understand me. And it's not always two-way. And I have to be honest, we have those conversations in America amongst ourselves. So I'm not trying to understand you. I want you to understand me. I care so much about you that I want you to understand me. <laughs> I want you to, exactly. <laughs> uh, like so many times, it's a choice. We could almost be like that couple that Ilana so beautifully represented, who says, you know, we're married, but my goal is to change you. My goal is I'm going to keep on speaking my language regardless of what it is. And then we could look at our differences and say, yes, this is irreconcilable. And that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or we could say, maybe there's another goal here. The goal can't be at the end that I break the lamp. That's the story. The story has to be that we choose. It is a choice we make. And even in this so-called red blueness, 80 to 75, maybe if we dig down a little deeper, something else could emerge. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Tali Cohen. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman and music is provided by SoCal. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about this show. You can write us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. Yossi, Ilana, thank you again very much, and thank you, all of you. <laughs>